Good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's on this third Sunday of Lent. Our liturgy uh, continues on page two. Bless the Lord who forgives all our sins. His mercy endures forever. Hear the commandments of God to His people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no gods but Me. You shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not invoke with malice the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not be a false witness. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus said the first commandment is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. A reading from Exodus. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Amen. 
We will read Psalm 95 responsively by whole verse. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and raise a loud shout to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the caverns of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands have molded the dry land. Come, let us bow down and bend the knee, and kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Oh, that today you would hearken to his voice. Harden not your hearts as your forebears did in the wilderness, at Meribah and on that day at Massa, when they tempted me. They put me to the test, though they had seen my works. Forty years long I detested that generation and said, This people are wayward in their hearts. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. A reading from Romans. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were, we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to John, Jesus came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well 
and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left, the water jar, left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left, they left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than the... Then comes the harvest, but I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that, which for, wh that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the city believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of our world. The Gospel of the Lord. Before we begin, I think it's worth noting that today's Gospel reading is the longest recorded dialogue Jesus has with anyone in all four Gospels. And the conversationalist is a surprising choice for many reasons. It is a Samaritan woman. So for some background, 
The Jews and the Samaritans are ancestrally related. The Samaritans are from the old northern kingdom of Israel, while the Jews are from the old southern kingdom of Judah. To make a long story short, the Samaritans intermarried with non-Jewish peoples and lost much of their ethnic identity, while the Jews maintained theirs. Animosity built between the two, and time has only widened that chasm. Each group ended up with their own temple. The Samaritans on Mount Gerizim, the Jews on Mount Zion. And so it's a strange choice Jesus makes to travel through Samaritan territory. That he strikes up conversation with the Samaritan is even stranger. And this conversationalist who engages Jesus at length isn't given a name. Maybe John is protecting her, or perhaps there are other reasons for this omission. But I, for one, would love to know her. I feel a deep resonance with her spirit. So many commentators have portrayed her as shameful and broken, coming to draw water in the middle of the day because she's embarrassed to be there at the same time as other women because of her questionable past. However, when I read her dialogue, I don't see a drop of shame anywhere. I can't help but wonder, maybe she's there at noon because she had other things to do beforehand. Maybe she wanted to sleep in a little. I've never understood why her arrival at midday must indicate something negative about her character. Jesus certainly seems to deem her a worthy conversation partner. She pushes back. She asks him feisty questions, questions that indicate she understands their shared cultural history, knows the stories of the patriarchs, and is willing to press at the uncomfortable boundary lines of conversation just out of curiosity. I love how she matches him question for question. If I met a random man at the well, especially one who I thought had reason not to like me very much, I definitely would not want to stop and point out that fact. I think I would quickly scoop him some water, probably just nodding my head, and then try to go on about my business. I certainly would not ask, are you aware that you're not supposed to like me? There's almost a defiance about her. Jesus conveniently skips over that question and asks her about his identity. He says, If you know the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. I can almost hear the skepticism and sarcasm in her voice. Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. And where is this living water? Do you think you're better than Jacob? Once again, Jesus doesn't answer these questions and sidesteps with, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water that I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. No explanation, no defense of who he is, I can imagine her rolling her eyes before she says in an unimpressed tone, Sir, give me some of this water. Like she's trying to call his bluff and see if he can really make anything happen. Then the story takes a surprising turn. Jesus says, Go call your husband and come back. I imagine her looking at him with defiance in her eyes when she says, I have no husband. In my head, it's as if she's saying, if you have something important to say, you can say it to me. But maybe she's also a bit rattled. Perhaps her jaw drops when he says, 
You are right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. How did he know that? For those of us born and raised in the South, maybe it's not shocking that the juicy details of someone's personal life have subtly traveled far. But in this context, and the fact that Jesus has been on a long journey towards Jerusalem, it's obvious to her that he didn't just hear this from the rumor mill. She leans in inquisitively. Sir, I see you are a prophet. Her next question is so theologically astute. She asks Jesus to resolve the long-standing and divisive question of who is right, the Jews or the Samaritans? Where is the correct temple? Is it Jerusalem or Jerusalem? And the surprise comes when Jesus raises the issue to a new level. True worship will no longer depend on a location, but will be a matter of spirit and truth. A new way is opening, though this woman, the disciples, and the rest of the world really, have no idea what this new kingdom, this new way of doing things, will look like. The conversation ends with one more surprise. The woman confesses her faith in the Messiah who is to come. And Jesus says, he is that Messiah. So Jesus reveals his identity, not to the disciples, not to his own people, not to the religious leaders, but to this feisty, sarcastic Samaritan woman. We do not even know her name, yet Jesus entrusts her with his deepest secret, the truth of who he is. Just then, the disciples arrive on the scene, and they have no idea what to make of this conversation. They ask no questions, but are clearly full of questions they would like to ask. I imagine in this millisecond that Jesus turns his head to acknowledge the disciples' arrival. She sets down her water jar, hikes up the hem of her skirt, and takes off running. Maybe the disciples think they've scared her off. Instead, the very opposite is true. She brings the crowds back to Jesus in full force, once again, with just a question. He can't be the Messiah, can he? Sometimes just the question is enough. The questions are enough. If we zoom out a little, what is the source of the questions in this story? They center around the well, around water, right? That idea snagged on another concept I stumbled across while reading this week. I'm currently working on a book entitled Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age by Catherine May. The book is based on the premise that during the most intense parts of the COVID crisis, our brains made some fundamentally processing shifts that are difficult to undo now that we are no longer operating under a state of constant alarm and threat. She suggests that we have lost our ability to find enchantment or awe and mystery in the minutia of the world around us. In her writing, enchantment is defined as small wonder magnified through meaning, fascination caught in the web of fable and memory. It relies on small doses of awe, almost homeopathic, those quiet traces of fascination that are found only when we look for them. It is the sense that we are joined together in one continuous thread with the existence of the elements constituting this earth 
and that there is a potency trapped in that interconnection, a tingle on the border of our perception. That's it, my brain yelled. That's the water in the well. As they progress through the conversation, Jesus uses the shift from the idea of well water to living water to bring this sense of awe, this enchantment, a small wonder magnified through meaning. In awe and wonder always lead to questions. Catherine taught me a new word for this experience in her book, herophony. She writes, The term herophony is used to describe the way the divine reveals itself to us, transforming the objects through which it works. So maybe something like, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water I give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give them will become in them a spring of water for eternal life. I didn't catch that preposition the first time. In us, the spring of water becomes eternal life. We must take it in. We must draw up the bucket and pour ourselves a cup, though we are unsure exactly what the outcome might be. Like the Samaritan woman, we ask the questions. We engage the conversation, open to finding that the divine is revealing itself to us in unlikely places through unlikely people. This is to say, if we are open to this kind of encounter, it collides with our senses and our imagination to create a kind of wonder that reveals the depth of all life and creation. Water is obviously something we need to survive. It's an agent not only of necessity, but one of chaos and sometimes destruction. It's something we can scoop into our palms, hold inside our cups, but it also roars in thunderous waves and rushes in mighty floods. We can hold it, capture it for a moment maybe, but we cannot contain or control it. I wonder if this is what Jesus wants us to imagine the kingdom of God is like. This conversation was obviously important to him. Not only is it the longest dialogue in the Gospels, but the disciples weren't even present for it. For it to be recorded for us, it would have had to have been retold. So I imagine Jesus retold it to them, maybe encouraging them to look for the divine, revealing itself to them in the midst of ordinary things. Maybe through the wrestling and asking of hard questions. And now that this idea is stuck in my head, I cannot help but ask, what are the hierophanies of Lent? What about the ashes? What about the practice you have chosen to help you remember your humanness during this time? But also, what about the Eucharist? Remember, part of her definition of enchantment was the sense that we are joined together in one continuous thread of existence with the elements constituting this earth, and there is a potency trapped in this interconnection. If that's not a Lenten reflection on Eucharist, I don't know what is. Every Sunday we partake in bread and wine, a small wonder that's magnified through meaning, a reminder that in us is a spring for eternal life. We are reminded we are bound together in our wonder and in our frailty, in the divine coming to us through the elements constituting this earth. We are reminded our community is a well of eternal life to the world, offering an alternate way of seeing, a way of wrestling with questions 
and looking for the divine in all things, a way of living bound to each other and our Savior, who cannot be contained or controlled in all the ways we might like to make things feel shiny or more comfortable. Maybe we would like to take the path that does not march through Samaria and would not place us in conversation with feisty and unlikely truth-tellers. But that is not the path our Savior takes. So may you find a hierophany this week, awe, wonder, and a divine presence revealing itself to you, whether that's in the blooming Bradford Piers along Watauga Street, or in the wrestling with the unknowing in the face of what you cannot contain and cannot control. Sometimes the questions are enough. Amen. Let us stand and reaffirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who is God of all mercy, we pray for the church throughout the world, and especially for Justin, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael, our presiding bishop, Brian, our bishop, Johnny, our rector, Chris and Gordon, our deacons, in our diocese for Episcopal Church women and diocesan daughters of the King. We pray for all bishops, priests, and deacons, that our faithfulness might not be limited to acts of piety but be manifest in lives and lives of peace, charity, and compassion for the welfare of the poor, the stranger, the outcast, and the hurting. Lord of all, we pray especially for the peoples of Ukraine and Russia and for all those under threat of war. Bring mercy and peace where violence and hostility are imminent and lead us beyond hatred and nationalism toward the responsibility for one another as global neighbors. We pray also for all who hold public office and positions of authority, remembering especially Joseph, our President, the Congress of the United States, our Courts of Justice, and all who carry the burden and temptations of leadership. Grant them a spirit of humility, compassion, and peace, that they might repent of the violence and greed that consumes us, and bring us all more closely to the abundance of your peaceable kingdom. 
Most Holy Creator, all that you have made speaks of your goodness, and you have made us caretakers of that goodness. Give us the eyes to see with broken and contrite hearts the ways in which we have squandered your gift. Set us free from the habits of waste and misuse we have cultivated over generations, and fill us with the spirit of gentleness that everything we touch might know your embrace. You are the God who has come among us. We pray for our city of Kingsport, remembering especially Pat and Richard, our mayors, our city and county school systems, our teachers, social workers, and all who serve the poor and homeless in our city. Reveal yourself among us in our neighbors and open our doors to welcome them as Christ. Loving God, we hold before you those whom we love and are in need of your care, especially Sister Becky, Carolyn, Stephanie and family, Bill, Ginger, Louisa, Randy, Mariana, Martha, Mike, Allison DeWitt, Doreen, Beth, Myra, Rick, Jay, John, Kim, Deanna, Jackson, Kathy, Jonathan, Patricia, Jonathan, Sarah Beth, Jason, Dot, Gary, Phyllis, Kim, Diane, Larry, Alice, Matt, Richard, Anne and Larry, Donna. Gather them under the shadow of your wing and grant them wholeness and peace. God of rest and giver of life, we remember before you those who have died, especially the most reverend Frank Griswold. Grant them a place of rest in your household until the last day when they are raised with us to abundant life. O Lord our God, accept the fervent prayers of your people. In the multitude of your mercies, look with compassion upon us and all who turn to you for help. For you are gracious, O lover of souls, and to you we give glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Friends, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.